What's up? What's up? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy. And a quick reminder that next week, I think the the Sunday after next week's episode, the final bonus episode is going to drop for the 2018 retrospective. And before I continue, if you think like my pronunciation is not that clear, <laughs> I am already apologizing in advance. Um, I have a canker sore. If that's if, anyway, yeah, that's why it's tough to speak. So for this episode, we're gonna talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the Forty Sixth Academy Awards. That film is Day for Night, or in its original language, La Nuit Americaine, which translates to American Night. Written and directed by François Truffaut. Co-written and directed by François Truffaut. So this was France's sixth win and 14th nomination. So for a quick summary, this film is about um, a director, uh, who, a Ferrand, who is making a film called Je vous présente, Pamela. Um, and it stars an aging screen icon, a former diva, a young heartthrob, and a British actress who just flew into France to shoot this film. And basically, the, f- the film is about the filming of that film. That's a bad summary, but yeah, this film is really... No, more on that later. So, that's Day for Night. So, our guest for this episode is from the United States. He's a film critic, and you can see his works at from the front row and interview online. I'm so happy to have him on this episode. Please welcome Matthew Lucas. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. You know, I mean, just trying to find like um, an episode to have you on. And this was like kind of the perfect one. I hope, I think so. Um, can you tell the listeners where, where can they find you on the internet? Sure. Yeah. So I um, am the editor of From the Front Row, and you can find me there at fromthefrontrow.net. I'm also a staff writer at In Review Online, and you can find me there at inreviewonline.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Lucas. There you go. So, um, all right, day for night. Um, hmm. 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 I have said this in the 1974 episode, and I'll say it again. This period of the foreign language film winners terrify me because these are like big names. And, you know, I just came from Kurosawa and then um, passed on to Fellini, and then now I'm doing it with Truffaut. So I am kind of scared, but I do want to hear your thoughts on this because I'm not sure if this was your first time or is this a rewatch. Um, is this the first time to watch Day for Night? This was my first time with Day for Night, yes. So, uh, what do you think of your first impressions of Day for Night? You know, I think I think it's fantastic. Um, Truffaut is one of those filmmakers that I sort of have trouble with, um, mainly because he's just so well-known, um, and especially with everything that he did um, with the French New Wave, but he's one of those filmmakers whose work I've never really connected with in a way that I have with other filmmakers from the new wave. Um, so it was it was good to be able to see this um, and, and doing some reading about it after watching it. Um, 
I, I think it's interesting to see how it fits into the new wave and how it was perceived by other new wave critics. Um, Godard hated it. Um, <laughs> this this was the movie that kind of ended uh, the friendship between Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut. Um, and at this point in his career, uh, Godard was deep into his Ziga Vertov period with uh, Goran. And it's just, it's easy to see how what Truffaut does in Day for Night was going in a completely different direction from the way Godard uh, was taking his cinema during that period. Godard thought that Day for Night was far too commercial. Uh, he said it was a lie, that this is not how films are really made, that Truffaut was lying to the audience. Um, I don't really agree with what Godard has to say about it. Um, Godard is one of those filmmakers that I love. I have a lot of uh, respect for him, but I also think that he was kind of an asshole, uh -huh. especially during this period. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting to watch Day for Night and just contrast it with what Godard was doing. Um, there's something very meta about it, the way that you're kind of, the film that we're watching is the film that's being made. And uh, being able to see kind of those behind the scenes um, anecdotes and uh, ways that films were being made during the period, even if it is not, as Godard would have said, 100% accurate to what was going on. I think having Truffaut cast himself as the director uh, adds another layer um, on top of that, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, um, this is also like my first time to watch this one um i don't know if i'm proud to say that because i i think i should have seen this when i was in film school but <laughs> i don't know i kind of nudged my way into like no avoiding it and um but i know that this is like one of those um prescribed viewings for film students mm -hmm. and um again there's such a reputation coming in like i i you know with this would be truffaut like you said it's kind of hard to separate this from the movement where he belongs, the discussion with this mm. film, which I think I kind of did because <laughs> I haven't really seen a lot of, which is again not good to say, but I haven't seen I haven't really seen a lot from the French New Wave, which is gonna be crucified by my, my professors. But <laughs> uh, since I'm doing this podcast backwards, uh, I'm just starting to open myself up to the the movement in a backwards way as well. And I've seen a little bit of Truffaut. I've seen The Last Metro. And I have seen um, The Story of Adelaide. So there's that. Um, but unlike you, I have a different entry point. I just know Truffaut. I, I, I actually don't think I know him. <laughs> so I was coming in as a, as a podcaster. <laughs> but as you know, someone just like watches films. And I... Love this. Um, I think it's the first time that I can I said that for a film in this season. Uh, no hesitations. I love this. Um, it's it's you know it's very self self referential, and I've been trying to avoid to use the word meta because I think there's for me personally like I cannot explain it, but you just I feel it. But, you know, there's a whole theory around it. Like, nope, I'm not, I, I'm avoiding that. So, but for me, I, I was just 
so um, enthralled by how this was put together because um, I actually cannot articulate why exactly, but I think it's so much fun and that's not like the most profound <laughs> reason why to love a film, but it's so fun and yet it's serious about what it's talking about. It's uh, it's really making us experience the rigor of the filmmaking and uh, kind of deconstructing it as well. And it's also kind of exposing, but not to the point of like uh, exposing to, uh, I don't know, antagonize or negate the, the, the whole filmmaking process. But I think it's exposing... But it's coming from a place of love, of filmmaking. I don't know what you, what 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 um. What do you think about that? Like that uh, nature of the film being, uh, self-referential and like, you know, this is a film about making a film, and how do you think it tackles that? I think that's what makes it so brilliant. Um, you know, one of one of the issues that I've I've had with Truffaut historically is I've just not been able to connect emotionally with his characters. Um, if you look at uh, Jules and Jim or um, 400 Blows, the ones that, you know, kind of made him who he was, um, I've always felt that they were holding me at arm's length a little bit. I was never able to really connect with the characters. And I did not have that problem uh, in Day for Night. Um, I think because there is kind of that almost absurdist element that, you know, it, just watching Truffaut, the director character, be inundated with these inane questions about every single minute detail about the film and just becoming more and more frustrated with it but also kind of taking it in stride because he's 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 the guy you know he's the one that's in charge of everything um it it the repetition of that becomes so funny um and just seeing you're, you're almost kind of looking into Truffaut's soul here. Um, it's not as serious of a film as some of his other works um, that are, you know, kind of considered top tier Truffaut. Um, but I, I was able to settle into the group of this one um, a little easier just because it's so, it's just so fun and light and you're kind of seeing the, the, the process of filmmaking from Truffaut's perspective. And that's that's really engaging to me. Yeah, and the, the 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 fun aspect of it isn't to make it lightweight. the The fun no. aspect of it, it's to make for us to uh, for the film to make us understand how um, how uh, I, I'm making it sounds like how. The nature of filmmaking is it's one question after the other. It's an interaction after another. There is this breakneck pacing to it that um, when us observing it, it feels kind of, it's almost kind of funny in a sense that uh, because, you know, the way these people can get so serious in the smallest of things and there is in this intensity in filmmaking that when you're making a film, you're just so in it that you don't get to see, like, you know, as kind of an outsider, like, kind of ridiculous, like, how stressful it can get. Um, and, you know, I had flashbacks when I was making my film, like, oh, shit. That feeling of, like, you're so in yourself, 
But with Truffaut, it's like him showing us <laughs> how ridiculously self-serious can it get. But um, but there is a love for everyone involved in the filmmaking process of it. Um, the focus of the film, in as much as the film is kind of an- the narrative is kind of anchored to Ferron, the director, um, we actually follow a lot of characters, and I think the focus is uh, kind of spread out. You know, we get to see we get to spend a lot of time with. Uh, the actors and then the the behind the scenes crew and each and every one of them has their own like um, scenes that don't necessarily have like one thread of a character tying them all. It's really much, uh, the, f- the film is really more concerned in following the experience of filmmaking through different experiences. You know, the, the script girl can be um, dissatisfied with the relationship that she has with, the young actor and then you go to the next scene and then you see um, the former diva Severine um, stumble upon her lines and become this uh, big drama of it. And the film like goes into those scenes deep. Like it's not like just touching on the surface and it's shifting of focus constantly and we kind of go back to the director character of Ehon, but it's really spread out. Um, what do you think of this, uh, the way the film shifts focus continuously almost to follow these characters? It's almost Altman-esque in that way, mm-hmm. um, in the way that there's not necessarily a central character. Uh, it, it, it's constantly breaking off into these backstories, um, you know, from the actors to the script girl to, you know, it, it really kind of follows so many different aspects of filmmaking at once and it it, it kind of deglamorizes and demythologizes the entire process so you can tell that Truffaut loves what he's doing but he's also kind of winking at the audience and saying you know it, people look at me as like this serious artist but this is ridiculous like I'm, <laughs> I'm having to answer the most inane questions I'm spending 15 minutes trying to get a cat to drink out of this saucer and the cat just will not cooperate, but they've got to get this, uh, this shot just perfect. Um, you know, the, one of the scenes that really stood out to me besides the cat, um, is you, you mentioned it a minute ago when Severine is, uh, she's come back. This is like her big comeback vehicle and she can't remember her lines and she's getting more and more frustrated and they're, they're, they're taping, her script in these really um, obscure places throughout the set so that she can basically read it as she moves throughout the scene and it it makes things worse. And I've seen that happen. You know, I've done theater work before and I've seen that happen where people don't know their lines and they're trying to hide their lines somewhere on stage. It's making it so much worse. And it it kind of deglamorizes the acting process a little bit too, because, you know, we see the finished product. We see the the part with no flaws, but there are so many mistakes and flaws and things that go into making the film. And um, I think that makes it really fascinating to watch. Exactly. Like I, one would expect that, you know, when you watch something this fun, it's really more about like just enjoying the glamour and how flawless it is, how enjoy it. No, it's really about the, these characters like getting their hands dirty and really like this workmanlike treatment with the filmmaking process, it's not necessarily something glamorous. I mean, 
uh, the film does treat at the beginning just treat Julie Baker as a star but once she comes into the set it really becomes this again she's sucked into the rigorous like cut action cut action like there's no time for glamour here there's no time for us to sit back and like look at this with um you know with the kind of uphold the filmmaking process in a pedestal like not really we are literally seeing the behind the scenes of making a film which is what exactly this film is about um but it's for us to have an e- i don't know i had just more appreciation in the process after seeing it it's like exposing for us to understand more and i think that's where Truffaut is coming from i think i don't know him oh, but that um you know that seamless relationship of the on camera drama and the off camera drama <laughs> and how they bleed it's not necessarily kind of like one of those films where um where the film is intentionally making it not clear if it's an on camera drama or off camera we, we kind of know but how one bleeds to the other like uh how again going back to the scene with Severin how how a personal problem can bleed through her line readings or how um uh, an unplanned affair on set can affect how a scene is shot you know with with Julie and and uh Alphonse with the candle and how it just informs the relationships on set are with the context that is going on in the set and it's uh i don't know i i, I always go back to saying i love it because it's just uh i, I I'm, a lot, i'm a lot of words really i i love how it's done well it literally kind of exposes the facade of filmmaking right there's that great shot at the beginning where they they've been shooting the street scene and we've watched them shoot it several times and then the camera pulls back and we see that the buildings that we are looking at are not real buildings they're these like plaster facades that have been built on the back lot and this is not a real location um so it, it's it's showing the artifice but it's also showing you know the the real lives of the people that are involved and how those inform uh what we're watching yeah and um, that scene was kind of uh, really striking like as an opening scene because we then see how <clears throat> you know how ridiculous the repetition is like you said about like the, repeti- the repetitive nature of shooting to get multiple mm. takes and then um, I think that slap when they're trying to shoot the slap and as it, it's it's really not It, it, it's 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 fake. <laughs> it's not a real slap. Right. So then it exposes the ins and outs of filmmaking, and I, I don't know. It, it it was really just fun, and um, the score by Georges Delarue uh, was really helpful. I think in setting the tone that uh, this is gonna be some quick paced. I don't know something you you, you uh, enjoy. Um, and then as it turns out that classical that that music that um, has characteristics of characteristics of the classical mu- music is used to amplify the occasional absurdity of filmmaking 
and even not highlighting how absurd characters can get, but the just the nature of it, you know, how the intense physicality, the intense um, stamina that it requires for the people there, and for what? For a shot about with a cat, or and for what? For a scene with the rain, and a scene with a couple talking in the rain can mean so many things. It can mean like someone sitting in the chair of the lead actor, or it can mean that the director steps in. Um, it's it's so good <laughs> like i i lost it there um yeah but that intertwined existence of the on and off camera uh relationships and how the film really sets itself to focus on one thing at a time kind of deepens the experience of the filmmaking process I'm I'm a film score nerd, so the 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 scene with De La Rue where he actually calls uh, Truffaut oh. and plays the little bit of music over the phone for him, you know that that was actually De La Rue, and then you hear that piece of music again uh, when they're shooting the candle scene at the end, and um, that that was a neat little Easter egg for me. Oh, see <laughs> those things that. Um, kind of like with Truffaut himself being there, the com the composer that he's talking to is the actual composer of the film. It's decided um, meta-ness is really what gets me of uh, how just it is unafraid to be doing that because I, I believe it can be exposing, you know, to a filmmaker to show this much, you know, not even hiding... To even put a character that's like a surrogate for himself as a director, I, it can be either way. It can be so vain or it can just be so exposing. But regardless, for me, I pick up, I picked up something deeper. You know, it's like a filmmaker exposing his uh, himself really in his work, and we get to see day for night be made. Through the lens of Je vous présente pas mais made. Does that make any sense? Like, you know, we, we get to see the making of Day for Night and represented to the filmmaking of the film made in the. I'm getting ridiculous in my words. Well, well, even the title of the film is itself kind of a meta commentary on what we're seeing. The, the, the Day for Night, um, the, what was called the American Night, um, was when they would shoot a nighttime scene in the daytime. So they would they would put a filter over the lens and they would make it look like it was at nighttime, but it's actually being shot in the daytime. And that was something that was a fairly common practice with American films at the time. So they were able to put that extra layer of artifice built into the title that what we're watching is, um, it's not real. Like it's, a, it's an approximation of something else. Yeah, and that title... Um, I was trying to think of um, the meaning of the title because um, <laughs> because that's what I do. Uh, but I was, you know, like you said, that is a wonderful uh, take on the on the title. Um, for me, I took something else, and um, you know, with us seeing how they dealt with several hurdles within the set. Um, Deaths, uh, no death, death, um, conflicts, d 
alcohol, uncooperative cats. You know, with the day for night, uh, it being um, trying to make something work. You know, like it would. You know, with shooting, I'm getting confused even with the day for night. So, uh, you shoot something in day. No, no, no. You shoot something at day that is supposed to be set at night. So it's kind of like, for me, I took it as like making things work. Even if it's not working necessarily originally in one's favor. I mean, that's what Ferron faced a lot of times here. Um, trying to compromise and make decisions. And when does a compromise feel acceptable when it is when it when it isn't um and ultimately i think that one of the biggest co- um compromises that the film did was um at the ending you know when one character died and they had to continue shooting and it became this snappy creative process like how do we get this done remove the scenes shoot it from the back and it became this, um, I think that's where I stuck with the title Day for Night. That um, almost like attitude of work in filmmaking that you never really just stop and, uh, you know, mull over a problem. You get things done and you make things work. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the film itself is kind of a thumb in the eye of the auteur theory, right? I mean, it's... Uh, which is something that was a, a kind of a cornerstone of the of the French New Wave, um, and this kind of pulls that back a little bit. Like it's yeah. not this grand artistic vision of this one man. There are so many compromises. There are so many people involved. Yeah. There are, are it, it's a collaboration and it's a constant reevaluation of what you're doing. So like when the the character dies and they want to to do something different and the studio is like no we're not giving you any more money you've just got to figure it out and so every step of the way there's something that they have to do to to make the film work that is a compromise like it's never this grand artistic vision um the way even the the new wave critics would have argued just 10 years before this yeah maybe that's what Godard set off but set him off i don't know but uh it's it's now it's really getting interesting you know with i'm just so now it gives me a different context you know when you're saying when you reminded me thank you for reminding me that this is actually part of the french new wave and that gives a context to it it is also kind of ironic because the french new wave that has really brought about the auteur theory, um, which there's this one singular voice, has the auteur. And then we have this film that kind of celebrates the collaborative nature of the filmmaking. Um, that is not solely about the director. In, in fact, there are lots of times where we don't just go with the with, with the director. It gets interesting once you say the context of where this film operates. And that's probably why, <laughs> you know, like his colleagues have that reaction to it. I, I don't know what, what lie Godard was talking about, but 
yeah, you know, him being um, part of that movement and then what comes out from him is this film. It's kind of contradictory. Yeah, I like to think of Day for Night as a uh, like a dialogue between um, a, a more seasoned Truffaut with his younger self, um, someone who has experienced filmmaking uh, from a more practical side and not just a theoretical side. Um, so it's like, He's had years of experience under his belt at this point. Um, he is more aware of what the filmmaking process is like. And he's kind of reaching back and explaining to his younger self, who was uh, a film critic uh, at Cahiers du Cinema, that it's a lot different than maybe what they originally thought it was. Um, you know, the, the Cahiers critics were the ones that really championed the auteur theory and the idea of, um, the director being this singular voice uh, who was guiding the film. And, um, you know, I think the older, the older Truffaut is maybe thinking, well, this is probably a bit more of uh, a collaborative effort than maybe he realized. So I, I, I think that's just an interesting way to look at Day for Night is, is that it is kind of this dialogue with uh, this young upstart film critic uh, from the 1950s who had championed these uh, great American directors and uh, British directors like John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock. And that you know, these were like the great artists and they, they guided their work with a singular voice. And I, I think experience maybe taught him that not all of his theories um, were as perhaps as ironclad as maybe they had thought at one point. Yeah, and it's shown in the film, right? Uh, uh, he, the Lillian, the Gish's uh, dedication, mm -hmm. the books where, you know, he just, <laughs> like Truffaut was laying out his influences on a shot. <laughs> and um, I, that is, that that term, dialogue, between the old Truffaut and the new Truffaut, it's, it's so good. And I think that age thing really comes, you know, when, when you know, because there is this flashback slash dream sequence of him being a kid, um, it really is different, you know, once there's praxis involved. It's no longer just reviewing films, watching films, thinking about films, but getting his hands dirty and be part of it. It's it's um his attack to the filmmaking is no longer just like an observatory like, you know, an arm's length observation. This feels like a deconstruction of the filmmaking process. Um, of someone who's been there in those trenches, and um, with that, I keep I keep forgetting that he was a critic before. So um, again, I'm sorry to my film professors. Like I, I know they taught me well. It's on me, <laughs> but yeah, that really informs the perspective where he's coming from, and we actually get to see where that takes place. Um, or we get to see the different aspects of filmmaking separately. And then how they come together. And in some ways, it's, in my understanding of the word, it's kind of formalistic. You know, the same way that I initially um, think of, thought of film criticism is that, you know, you break it down to the different aspects, you know, cinematography and costume design and makeup. And then you kind of summarize it, put it back in the end. And... The film feels like 
it's like that. You know, it's it's really trying to. It's almost like a tour of the departments of filmmaking, and then showing us the different aspects of filmmaking, and then ultimately bringing it back. You know, and there's this auteur behind it still, but it's not the only voice there. In fact, he can be not necessarily an active voice. He can be just reactive. Like, what do you want? Here, this, this, that, this, that, that, yes or no. And the film is kind of dealing in that way. I, I don't know what you think about that. It it explores the formalist aspects of filmmaking in an also formalist way. I'm sorry. I, Lena, this so much in this film. Like, I, I just thinking about talking about this film and I hearing myself, like, I feel stupid. <laughs> if I'm being honest, there's, there's a lot of things happening in this film at that point. Well, like you said, so many uh, of the decisions that uh, Truffaut makes as his character in the film, it, it, they are reactive. Uh, people are constantly coming up to him and asking questions, you know, is what color dress do you want in this scene? What do you, what color do you want the wallpaper? I mean, just like tiny little minute things where he's got to pick the gun for this scene. Yeah. He's, he's given uh, five or six guns and he has to pick the gun that looks just right for this scene. Um the the scene that I think is the key scene for me in the film, and I know I keep coming back to the scene with the cat, and I'm I'm not the crazy cat person that I sometimes appear to be, but it, it's the scene where it, they're trying to get this cat to drink from the saucer over and over and over and over and over again, and it's like he in that moment, you know, he's hurting cats, but the entire filmmaking process is like hurting cats because there's he's like the the, the standing in the eye of the storm of this hurricane. And the filmmaking process is kind of happening around him. And he is just trying to control almost the uncontrollable. And that's why I think that scene sticks in my head because it's so, it almost sums up the entire film in one scene. He's, he's trying to get this cat to drink the milk out of this bowl in a very specific way. And it takes take after take after take after take to try to get this cat to drink this milk. But it's not just that moment it's every scene that he has to direct is like that and every decision he has to make and every meeting he has with the the studio heads and the money people it's just this constant act of hurting cats to get this film made yeah now that scene just took on like more layers for me because i remembered when you were saying it i remembered like what martin scorsese said once in a round table that I think filmmaking is like trying to control the chaos or like the storm. And, you know, the cat is like an extreme example of like, how do you control a cat? You know, it's something that's, and you know, they had like a stray cat and they had like a studio cat and then they tried to like shuffle and make things work. And then when the cat was already trying to do it, the camera person was still like, trying to chase the guy, like, focus, focus, focus. And it's just, like, trying to capture what you can from something that's... Mm -hmm. When you just try to overly control it, it's just going to fall apart. So you sometimes have to, like, you know, there's a certain abandon to the filmmaking process that just sometimes you just have to capture and just give up because you cannot control everything. And that scene, I love that, that that's what you highlighted because it's one of the things that I also, like, took notice of, you know, in this film that is so filled with many fun scenes <laughs> that I almost started, stopped listing them because they're just so much fun. I personally 
go back to the opening sequence because it's um it's an encapsulation. It's it's a perfect setup for what we'll see in the film. Like we first see like okay, normal road scene, um normal people, and then there's a shooting. What the heck is happening? And then you see like a um, a slap that's a little bit too fake, and then there's a bell that rings when this when someone says cut. And then it's almost as if we see how the curtain is pulled back right in front of us. And there is this, um, I don't know what the word, uh, fluidity that um, we see from the on cam and the off cam. And it's not even as if the film is trying to deceive us into like making, confusing us like, all right, you don't know what's the off cam. No, we, we know. There's an action. There's a cut. You see the cl- uh, clapping, clap, clip. I forgot the term. The, the clapper board. I'm the I'm the film graduate. Shame on me. Yeah, slate. Thank you, slate. That kind of signifies where the rolling sound speed starts, but it's it doesn't have those obvious signifiers to signify that shift. Like, you know, it's clear technically speaking. But when when for example when I go back to the scene where um, Severino was drunk. Am I looking at Severina? Am I, am I looking at Valentina Cortese performing Severina? Or am I looking at Valentina Cortese performing Severina, performing the character in the scene? And it's the lines are blurred there on that note. And Valentina Cortese is, is brilliant. It's a it's a it's a performance. <laughs> it's like it's so de- it's deceitful because you kind of take it for granted as like this big diva moment. But then there's so much in it, like the fragility and the, the, of course the drunken. I can never be like a good judge of drunkenness because I don't get drunk. But I understand Miss Ingrid Bergman. I huge respect for apologizing. I haven't seen Murder of Orient Express, but it's just a brilliant scene that kind of encapsulates that fluidity and also. That scene with uh, I think the wife of one of the crew members, um, and she was, she kind of stormed in and started shouting at the filmmakers, and it's looking at the camera breaking the fourth wall. That is one of those moments that I listed because I have no idea what Rafa was trying to do in that scene, like, um, because he has a surrogate character in the film, which he also plays. So like, what the fuck, meta, but. You also get to this point of view shot. So I'm not sure if it was Truffaut kind of deflecting what the woman is saying. Or is it something that is he he is accepting and is directed to him. That scene kind of puzzles me in a good, bad, I, I don't know way. No way I'd rather say it. I, I, I think that's one of the things that makes the film so brilliant is that you know, there are so many layers, so many lenses that we can view each scene through. And no matter which lens you're looking through at that particular moment, then it the, the scene works on multiple levels. Um, it's you know, it, it works on that metatheatrical level. It works as a film in its own right. And there are different perspectives that I think Truffaut takes from time to time. Um, that really make it a very layered film. I mean, you you can you can read multiple scenes, um, multiple different ways. I mean, we're we are watching a film about a 
person who is directing a film and that person that we are watching direct a film is also the person that directed this movie um you know it's like that line in tropic thunder i'm a dude disguised as a dude playing another dude i mean it's it's very much that yeah but as a film and you know you, you you can you can really interpret um the the film several different ways depending on how you're watching it in that moment and to think that you know when you when you when you say it like that it's as if this film is heavy and lots of i mean it has lots of layers but it's there's a lightheartedness to it and that's what brings us in and that makes the multiple layers accessible or not mm. but the it it being an experience it makes it easier because um when when a film like this is just this enjoyable like even if you're not like um probably informed of all the jargons in filmmaking and or like those little like uh, inside jokes or whatever i don't know if i'm i'm inside inside jokes but if it's not intimidating or like heavy heavy or asking us to do a lot of work it just seems like fun behind the scenes um almost like a comedy of manners people fail people um it's kind of funny and physical and sharp dialogue and but because we're having fun and i think this also come kind of um uh is reflective of how much like the general consensus as a culture as a film going culture kind of takes comedy for granted is that we have our guards down and it's almost as if we're just taking it for granted uh-huh funny but then the film shows the complexities of it but in this tone in this way so that we're just open and then when we start to finally experience these layers it's like you know it, it's it's working even more because you're open to it and then you're suddenly like, ooh what what is that i, I mm, there is a different i i'm i'm feeling something more than just the laughs i'm i'm still laughing and the layers come across because it's more than just doing like a drama or be self serious to it I and mean, it's it, it shows that there is a seriousness on how Truffo is handling this but it's different it's more accessible um and i personally kind of recognize this kind of ridiculing I, i just love ridiculing people but it's also honest you know it's um it's not just making fun it's paying tribute and sometimes the best tribute is to make fun of something slash someone and this film I mean not saying that I'm not like you know not bad but um it can be both at the same time which is beautiful and sincere and um just honest you know where it's coming from I think it definitely rings true um you know I I have I've not uh I'm I'm not as experienced in filmmaking as I am in theater uh you know I, I I study film I write about film I watch films but my my real practice is in theater and even then um it, it still rings true with the process of putting together a, a piece of performing art in that way um I you know just how much of it that the audience does not see that goes on beyond the scenes to make all this happen what we're seeing on screen happen is just a series of unexpectedly minute decisions um that 
you might not think about when you're watching the film, but make a huge difference from the behind the scenes perspective. And that's what I think is uh, so interesting about that aspect of the film is that it's really fairly honest about what the process actually looked like. And it's, it's not as glamorous as one might uh, have expected just based on kind of the mythologizing of filmmaking itself. This really kind of brings it down to earth. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, again, the sincerity of it going back to the actual filmmaking process, because as we see in the film, not really a lot of big scenes, but more like small clips of small decision making. <laughs> and then once they go to the actual, like behind the scenes, it's like, what is he doing? What are you doing? Small moments. And then when it goes to the on camera, because all of that work gets put there in front of the camera, then it's it snowballs, whether it succeeds or it fails. It's become this, um, well, you know, it, it's a result of what happened before. And I love that the film was a matter of fact in it. It wasn't trying to like amp up the comedy, even though it's conscious of it. It's kind of funny with even like, even the wig is being consulted to Ferrand. Like, is this going to work? And then he's holding the wig like, uh, yeah, send it to Severina. And I love how, matter of fact, the film was with the decision making and also how Ferrand, as a director in the film, is also a matter of fact because um, it's just the way to go. And um, that kind of, constant decision making constant pummeling through like yes or no more more of this less of this um i remember that you know when uh, when when i made my college thesis because um that's the first time i had a full crew which is like 30 people i don't know if it's a full crew and um i came crashing down with so many questions i got overwhelmed and i just like i asked my assistant director like can you can you direct a film for me? Like, take over. And I would just come in and check, like, yep, that's good. That's good. Let's shoot, let's shoot this. And it, But, you know, in this one, there's a certain, like, um, it's not routine, but um, there's a lack of making it a spectacle. But I don't know if I'm actually agreeing with what I said. Anyway, um, it really helps. I'm really, like, this is me. I'm contradicting what I said, like, five minutes ago. I'm... Uh, in the film, it really helps that, you know, when you have this uh, controlled chaos of filmmaking and we follow a lot of characters, it really helps that the characters themselves are really fascinating, different from one another. They have their own eccentricities and peculiarities, their own um, ticks and quirks, and they clash and they complement. But the important thing is that they coexist in this ecosystem of filmmaking. And that whole environment feels alive in the film because um, someone who isn't isn't involved there might not get like what 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 the heck is happening? Why are they so like bonded and yet so divided? That's just a communal intensity of the filmmaking process. And thinking me with me thinking of like how the film spreads the focus. It's not equal, but the characters are given their own time. And the film 
understands that shared experience that it's not just the director going back to the contrary contradicting the author theory it doesn't just go back to the director there's so much happening around and sometimes it's the more interesting stuff you know the gossip of the makeup and the costume designer the affair of the driver and the script girl or whoever Sometimes it's the more interesting stuff and they also have an effect on what's happening on camera. So that is crucial for us to understand um, the nature of the filmmaking. That um, there is a really there's a reason why these people are sticking. Like they might not even <laughs> conceive what they're making because it's all in the mind of the director. But that bond of just making something together, that's the one that's established really well. You get the feeling too that the the film they're making is not actually going to be a good movie. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> they're they're spending, you know, that I would say uh, I'm not going to say a majority of films are bad, but you know the 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 great masterpieces are in the minority, right? So all this effort and all this work is going into a film that is compromised. It's um, not going to be particularly good. Um, one of their stars dies before they finish filming. They have not finished filming his pivotal scene. And the, the, the studio says, no, we're not giving you any more money or any more time. Uh, you've just got to work with what you have, which means they have to rework some of the most um, involved pieces of the film that they had spent the most time planning out. Suddenly that's gone. You know, so it, it, it's the, the film seems compromised from the get-go. It, it, it kind of reminded me of, um, have you seen the Christopher Guest's For Your Consideration? Um, it's with Catherine O'Hara. No, but that's Catherine O'Hara. So should, I should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a similar thing. You know, she's an actress. They're working on this schlocky little drama. Um, it's called Home for Purim. And it's, um, it's this almost like a Hallmark movie uh, very touchy feely. It's they think it's going to get Oscar nominations and it doesn't. And it's just it, it's a terrible movie. And it, it, I don't think that the movie they're working on is necessarily going to be that bad. But you, you know, it, it it's not, it's not a great piece of art that they're trying to make. They're just trying to to get this film done. Um, but I think I have seen uh, the crows have eyes. Three, the crony. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the scenes where, um, they, they were really trying to make the film, and I, I'm, I'm not even sure if Feon himself thinks that it's a great film or like he believes it's great. Um, like you said, you know, um, a lot of films are. Not, not a lot of films are bad, but only a few films are masterpieces or even like great, remotely great. But mm. I don't think, unless anyone is an asshole who really does make films for other other reasons, I don't think filmmakers set out to make a bad film. But it's really this blind faith that hopefully something's coming together in between action and cut. Um... <laughs> but I think Ferron is just like this lost cause. And like, let's just get this done. And like, let's just shoot this. And like, let's just make this scene work. And sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes it's a great thing. But just saying that he has, 
he's not the filmmaker that is so decided in his perspective. Um, mm. With with this um, thing highlighted, I remember two experiences that I I had, um, both in production, both bad. I've never had like a good production experience, so I have a lot of things to say. The first one is when I worked as a, in a miniseries that is acting was bad, direction was bad, the people were awful, the director screamed at me, I told him, sir, you cannot smoke here. Like, I'm smoking. I'm like, sir, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and I was a production assistant. And some of the people were assholes. And um, to be honest, I was even better than the actor. <gasps> wow. <laughs> but, you know, even... And, you know, the other experience is that I was a casting director that I wasn't credited for, like, a TV, like, web series drama-ish. And the writing was so bad. The director... No taste, awful, but I was kind of guiding the actors and like, sir, this is your scene, and we're gonna run through lines. And I know we're both cringing, but we're just doing it to just get this done. But when the director says action, I don't know, there's an excitement. Um, even when I was aware that what we're shooting is bad, I don't know, I just coming from a perspective of someone who likes storytelling. There is a thrill like, ooh, this is coming together. Like, this is bad, but it's coming together. And the relationship of these that these characters have in this film, going back to Day for Night, is not because the film is going to be great. I don't think there's a certainty with that. But I think, hopefully, that this is going to come together. That this is going to be a film that will be screened. That's just the bare minimum. And uh, I don't know, I think, try to remember the scenes, like... Love the cast, but I think Jesus present Pamela is bad. <laughs> so, but going back to the age thing, the dialogue, there is this recurring device, like the dream sequence of a young family going to the cinema, and it gets uh, lengthier as the film progresses. What do you think of that storytelling device? Uh, I, I think that goes back to to what I was saying earlier about um, being in dialogue with the younger Truffaut. You know, he he grew up idolizing movies, and he he kind of fell in love with those those images he was seeing up on the screen, and the fact that he was kind of falling in love, reminding himself why he fell in love with cinema in the first place you know he he started out you know as as big as you can start out with the 400 blows you know huge critical acclaim and he he was kind of like the wunderkind on on the scene everybody was falling in love with Truffaut and you know then he starts making films that are not as critically acclaimed you know as the the french new wave has kind of begun to wane and the original filmmakers are all kind of moving into their own brand their own type of thing um and you know he 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 had those films running up to day for nights like fahrenheit 451 mississippi mermaid things that he may have not been as happy with um Godard would have said he had sold out <laughs> but um it, and I, I think in that sense you know he's he's dreaming of a time when 
movies were magic to him and this film that he's making is not necessarily something that he's proud of and he kind of wants to to get back to the reason why he started making films in the first place yeah i i feel like he was trying to reignite or reach back to his love for cinema which i think is mm -hmm. the purest at that point because you're in wonder you're in wonder like for for I mean, for me at least, I mean, I, I've had this like reckoning like a few days ago that when I get back to the first films that made me fall in love with making films, the fascination is that how do I make that? I want to make that. You know, that it's so pure. And I would have stolen posters as well if I only could. But, um, but stealing no, was not one of my crimes in life. Uh, you know, the thing with that is, you know, I'm even remembering the, the, the dream sequence and there are these like um, marquee, and it's marquee signs, the, the neon signs of cinema. I think, yeah, it's really him trying to um, access that part of himself that um, he was inspired by cinema, that he was trying to get as much as he can to the point of stealing the stills from the cinema. And uh, my mom told me that before in cinemas, not everyone had posters. So they would post stills of the film. And for, uh, for uh, a cinephile like him, a cineast like him, that's what he could bring home because you cannot bring home films before. And because at the present time, he doesn't, it doesn't seem full of inspiration. But those moments when he was a kid, that's full of inspiration. In those yeah. formative moments, his love for cinema was pure, at its purest. And I think it's him wanting him to be reminded for that love. And um, I don't know what's happening to him in that career. I mean, um, you certainly said something about, you know, the, the career that he's kind of having at that point. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think... I think Day for Night kind of occupies a place in Truffaut's filmography very similar to Fellini's Eight and a Half. You know, it's it's the film, it's sort of autobiographical. It's not really, but, you know, Truffaut is playing a filmmaker within his own film. It's, it's talking about his own experience, his own viewpoint on cinema, um, where he's been up to that point. Um, I, I think, I don't think it's as you know, self-important or as self-indulgent as films like that can be when uh, a filmmaker makes a film about themselves or about their own passion for what it is they're doing. I don't think that is really present here. Um, but I, I think it is, it, it is Truffaut's eight and a half in that it's his own personal artistic statement um, at a time when he was no longer the new kid on the block, right? He's He's been around for 14, 15 years making films. Um, he's he's not that new wave wonderkind who had just appeared on the scene and changed filmmaking, the entire direction of cinema for a while. I mean, the, the new wave really revolutionized cinema at the time. But now we're, we're a long way away from 1959. We're in the 70s now, and he's... Not, if not the old guard yet, that he had once railed against, he, he's getting there. 
And I think this is him kind of reacquainting himself with the what he loves about what he does. Yeah, there's probably this certain, um, I don't know, maybe it's a confronting moment, you know, when, um, when he is faced with that reality already and, you know, with, with the claim that he wasn't getting anymore pre-day for night, it could probably this moment of, uh, I don't know, confronting that shit where where am i but i think why day for night is such a good film even when faced with that um situation is that he's facing it the consciousness that he's kind of maybe kind of falling down like or maybe i'm not at the top of my game anymore the consciousness yeah. of an artist that that's his place i think that is important because he gets to address it in this film um and, you know, he, Truffaut had a surrogate character um, make a film that's not probably good. And yet the film that was about the film that's not good was a wonderful film. I think mm. it's just like a moment of reconciliation for him that, um, uh, moment of reconciliation that maybe he wasn't, Maybe those five films. I'm looking at the list right now. Uh, After Stolen Kisses, Mississippi Mermaid, like I said, A Wild Child, Bed and Board, Two English Girls, Such a Gorgeous Kid Like Me. None of them really like um, did well, I think, critically at least. And I don't know. But at least with Day for Night, he has this, uh, I don't know. It's, it's I, I almost imagine like, it's not a vanity thing. I think it's a vulnerable thing to place yourself in. To be like, you know, <laughs> I'm here, made bad films, and um, I'm making a <laughs> film that's about a director making a bad film, and it's not even despite potential critics, but just like, you know, it's, oh, I want to sit on that thought. Um, yeah. It was a very interesting time for the new wave critics at that point. Um, you know, right, so much of his career up to that point had been dominated by his uh, early successes. He starts out with 400 blows and he continues to revisit that character played by Jean-Pierre Liot, who's also in Day for Night. Um, it was almost like the boyhood of its time. They keep revisiting this character as he grows up and he gets older and his new exploits and that kind of defined that early era of his career and he was moving into a, a new direction and trying to figure out who he was as a filmmaker beyond that and beyond some of these films that were kind of director for hire works where he was not the driving creative force behind them he was just the guy they hired to come in and direct the film and I don't think he was probably as passionate about those films as he was about those those early works that really put him on the map yeah i i love that the context that you're giving me because doing it backwards for this podcast is like i'm seeing the last metro first that's my first referral the last metro which was wonderful um but still feels kind of feels different here and then the story of adelaide just a few episodes ago and then 
for me, it's like, he's 343. What are you talking about? And then when you, well, because you've seen him from that context of the French to wave, like, no, 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 no. He has, he hasn't really struck gold since Stolen Kisses. And for, um, for that matter, it's, uh, I don't have that context because of me doing the podcast backwards, but, you know, just, you know, that, um, you call this, uh, him using him confronting filmmaking by making a story about filmmaking and it doesn't come across as self-indulgent but rather not necessarily a confession but more of like a i don't know if self-deprecation is the right word but it's it's around those terms you know how he um approaches filmmaking in respect to himself and um you know i i don't know what's happening with him and godard with that letter that godard sent but um i i cannot imagine what was happening at the time with godard and him french new wave all the drama well they had changed so much i mean these were guys who who really revolutionized cinema they they flew in the face of what was considered the, the the french standard of quality that there, there was this kind of stuffy quality to the filmmaking that they saw being made in France at that time. And, and they were they were kind of rebelling against that somewhat with much more loose, less plot-driven um, kind of films. And But by the end of the 60s, they had really all moved into their separate directions. Godard uh, had paired up with Jean-Pierre Guerin and they were creating more radical political films and Truffaut had moved away into more commercial filmmaking, which Godard absolutely rejected. You know, he, his whole thing was finding truth at 24 frames per second. And, you know, whether or not Truffaut ultimately found that in Day for Night, it was absolutely rejected by Godard, who, who wanted to completely rewrite cinema as a, a force for political change. And he made a lot of films around this point that were borderline unwatchable. He rejected every, everything about film form, about plot, about story. Everything was just gone. And yeah, at the end of Weekend, he, he declares end of cinema and he's like, I'm done with this. And so it was just a, a huge period of transition for all of those filmmakers who had really come up in the French New Wave. French New Wave. And I think Day for Night kind of symbolizes Truffaut reclaiming some of that, um, examining what had been done up until that point, kind of dealing with his own sense of creative ennui and kind of reinventing himself as a, a new kind of filmmaker, uh, starting up a new, uh, a new era in his career while, while Godard was very much still underground at this point. Yeah, um, now the conflict kind of started to make sense to me. I mean, um, I only, I remember like this one film that um, Jean Fonda did with Jean-Luc Godard, right? Um, she did uh, Tout va bien with him, I think the year before, 1972. So it was right around the same time. And it was very much, you know, a lot of what he was doing at that time was the reaction to the Vietnam War. So there was yeah. a lot of... Um, radical political um, things going on in his work at that time 
Yeah, um, it, 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 it makes sense, you know, how they splintered. And, but I, I think there must be some intense emotions there for um, them to declare, like, friendship over <laughs> with, uh, with this one, with Day for Night. But I, I, it, it's, I, I, I could not comprehend it. I mean, of course, they have their own um, context. Again, again, context, which I'm missing because I did this backwards. But, you know, in the context of the French New Wave, uh, I'm gonna have to catch up with a lot, and I'm I I'm not gonna make a promise that I'm gonna cover a lot here in the podcast. Maybe I have you know something down the line, but um, with that being said, um, I just want to highlight to backtrack a bit how wonderful this cast is. Um, that the the band of actors oh, yeah. that we had for day for night is just. Uh, Unbelievable. I think there's a certain layer of difficulty when you're portraying someone in the industry, you know, when the story is like you're an actor or like you're a veteran. And then <clears throat> you have that layer of difficulty. You have to sell not only that you're giving a good performance, but you're an- selling yourself as an actor, performing as an actor. You know, Valentina Cortez, Jean Pierre Gamon, Jacqueline Bizet, Jean Pelloud, Danny, well, of course, Francois Tufal, of course. As an actor himself, we love some actor or directors. Um, so the oh gosh, the more we talk about this film, the more I realized that um, I underprepared. I just enjoyed this film, <laughs> like we've been talking about a while ago. I took it for the surface level. I enjoyed it, but hearing a lot of the things that you mentioned because you had a different way in. To this film, so many layers and so many contexts that I would have to absorb before I could probably even appreciate Day for Night more, which is like unbelievable because I'm already appreciating it so much. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about Day for Night at Denby American? It, it's interesting to me that you know this was another collaboration between Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Liod, his uh, the actor that they really gave each other their careers. You know, Leod was the star of 400 Blows um, and continued on into Stolen Kisses and, and other works that he did. But at the same time, he's also doing Godard's radical films. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's he, he's going into these uh, films like Day for Night where he's playing a character and then he's going and doing films for Godard where he's basically just a mouthpiece for... Uh, Godard's latest political screed, uh, but it's it's fascinating to see his range as an actor on display here. You know, he he's playing a kind of self-absorbed actor role. Um, itself, kind of a, a a meta commentary on what other filmmakers were able to place on him um, as an actor. He he was almost a blank slate that they could use uh to to tell their stories and it's 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 interesting to see how their collaboration grew across across all the films they did together yeah um jean jean pierre <laughs> um yeah it's a role that could be taken for granted like oh the asshole but yeah there is um a lot of interesting behind the scenes drama and played with a certain level of seriousness within the comedy, like almost like there's a deadpan energy to him sometimes, and there's this immaturity that even this raises the, the, 
silliness of his character and how he makes things worse, especially in the end. Um, <laughs> it's just ridiculous and enjoyable. Um, I, 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 I don't know who else. I mean, Valentina Cortez is praised endlessly. Um, I'm taking a look at the cast and uh, yeah, good job. <laughs> it's a really good cast and um, one thing I could probably just say is that um, it's one of those films that I'm excited to rewatch um, because I, 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 I want to see this outside the context of like I'm going to talk about this for in a podcast. Uh, I want to I wanna see this as like for the layers and for the fun and for the filmmaking bring me back you know to the fall to fall in love with filmmaking um i i get it why this is um a required viewing for like film students and film lovers because it really is oh, absolutely yeah almost like a a celebration for of filmmaking for what it really is it's not something overly serious it's it's a little bit of everything. Kind of messy, kind of fun. It's a chaos, like I said, controlled chaos that uh, we fall in love every single time. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of rewatchability factor as well. It's it's the, There are so many layers to it, and but not in a, a heavy, serious way, in a very fun, lighthearted way. But uh, I think it would be a film that would be interesting to explore multiple times and just see what other things that you notice as you go through it. Yeah, and like for a first time, like, film goers like what subtitles what and then they can watch this and be like oh you know um french films can be fun yeah <laughs> they can so yeah i really just enjoyed it enough on a film goer level and so much to explore as a as a filmmaker and as a film reviewer a lots and lots of layers for this one agreed Bizarre depuis quelque temps. Hier soir, quand, quand tu quittais les réformes en plein milieu, c'était très grossier vis-à-vis -vis de Pamela. Elle est tout de même la femme d'Alphonse. On dirait que, que tu la détestes et que... Non, non, ça va aller très bien, Séverine. Ça va aller, vous savez. Ça va aller. On va arrêter un petit peu. Ça va aller. Hein? Je ne sais pas qu'est-ce qu'il me passe. Peut-être que c'est la peur qu'il me donne mal à la tête. Qu'est-ce que je ne sais pas. Non, mais moi, il soutient sur la cause similaire. La prime vente, non, c'est la cause similaire. Ce n'est pas grave. Ce n'est pas grave, Séverine. Bon, on arrête tout. On reprend la scène demain. Non, mais non, non. Vous pouvez aller vous reposer. Odile, où il est Non, c'est pas Odile. La maquilleuse, où il est Je voudrais mon poulain. All right, so let's talk about how Day for Night won the Oscar. Um, it premiered in France in May 24, but actually it first screened in Cannes out of competition in May 15 and screened in the United States in September 7 that year. And again, this was France's sixth win and 14th nomination, not counting the honorary awards before the competitive category. Um, so this film did really well <laughs> the award season at the time um, it got nominated in the Golden Globes for foreign language film and supporting actress 
in the BAFTAs, it won Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, and Best Film. National Board of Review Top 5. In the National Society of Film Critics, it won Best Film, Director, Supporting Actress. And those exact awards were also won in New York Film Critics Circle. I'm, again, not surprised with the with the domination, especially with the critics with this one. Um, this was part of the era when a film can get nominated in two Oscar years. So it won Foreign Language Film in 73. What was nominated for Directing, Supporting Actress, and Original Screenplay in 74. Um, I mean, those other four, those other three nominations the following year didn't really affect, but I think it's a manifestation of how the film was really loved at the time and the respect that it got, especially with Truffaut, and the fact that it had the staying power until the following year and get still those big nominations. Um, and kind of comparing to the group of nominees it was nominated with, I think it was an, I think it was an easy call, for day for night. I can't see any of these other films winning. Um, the Pedestrian actually won the Golden Globe, um, but you know it, it. It's it's kind of like the requisite World War II film amongst the nominees, um, and we know how much this branch loves those. Um, yes. But <laughs> I. It, day for night i think is just head and shoulders above the competition i i don't see any of these films really giving it a run for its money at all i mean there are i there are some that i really like but i cannot see the academy also liking them and i i don't know if we'll talk about this later but i'm surprised they were nominated at all yes <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> i i i I think Day for Night is probably the uh, the it it dominated. It had to have dominated in the voting. Easy peasy. So I think at, given that, like out of the way, Day for Night, easy winner at a time. We can just like go to the other nominees and just like as films, like happy that we nominated. Let's talk about them, shall we? Let's do it. All right. So. Yeah, the nominees that year were The House on Shalusha Street from, it's not Italy, it's Israel. And then L'Habitation from Switzerland, The Pedestrian from West Germany, and Turkish Delight from the Netherlands. Um, I would let you pick which film would you like to discuss first. Let's just dive right in. Let's go with Turkish Delight. All right. Okay, so Turkish Delight from the Netherlands. Um... This is the most successful film in Dutch history, as I've read, um, according to a very reliable source of information, Wikipedia. Uh, 26% of the Dutch population watched this one, which kind of surprised me, given the nature of the film. But I'm just going to summarize it a bit. It's about... Um, where is my summary? All right, so it's about a sculptor um, who has... Um, a turbulent relationship with a woman named Olga. And um, it's basically it, how messy the relationship is and how ultimately it was uh, bound to 
not work out for them. Um, see, the summary for IMDb gave up. It says a young love faces with old problems. Yeah, it's they gave up as well. Um, so Turkish delight. Why do you want us to discuss first? Um, it's the only other of the nominees that I really like. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's Paul Verhoeven. Um, he is really the only other filmmaker in this lineup, um, who has endured, um, in the popular imagination. He's got a new film coming out this year at Cannes. Um, <laughs> people know him for, uh, Total Recall and Basic Instinct and Starship Troopers. And, you know, the, the man has had some showgirls the man has had some major hits and some major flops but um they're remembered um and this was his second feature film and it is a wild ride that is the one that i mentioned that i am shocked that the academy nominated this um i think it's great but it is extremely sexually graphic um the Cannes film festival rejected it because they said it was pornographic. Um, and yet it somehow got nominated for an Oscar and became the most successful film in Dutch history, which is wild to me that it achieved that. Um, I guess this was the 70s, um, but it what a, what a bold pick for Best Foreign Language Film. I could not see the Modern Academy nominating a film like this today. I just, I don't think it could happen. Um, yeah it's it's fascinating it's it's something that i i loved it and i hated it at the same time which is just pure paul verhoeven because it's <laughs> it's like it's it's trashy but also artful and it's lurid and it's kind of at this intersection between art house and grindhouse which i just find fascinating it's it's the lead character um played by uh, rutger hauer is just reprehensible he is a terrible human being but you know i despite the fact that he is behaving so poorly and is just such an awful person and he treats um his olga his love interest in the film he treats her so terribly um i i just i was fascinated by the film you know even even barring the, the problematic nature of their relationship and the way that he treats her um, it's just, it's, it's interesting to see what Verhoeven does with that material. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, this film, um, I didn't know what it is about. So, uh, I watched it with my mom um this is one of those don't watch with your parents kind of yeah. movies. and i think i learned my lesson like five minutes in and i was howling because i was and my mom was like why are you howling He's like i can't believe they nominated this oh yeah it's dark it's nasty it's um it's disturbing. It's graphic, even in today's standards. It's it's mm -hmm. full of those that dangerous sex tendency, which um, is always 
welcome, but I'm surprised to have that platform here at the, the Academy Awards, especially being nominated. And the moment I saw this, I immediately remembered Betty Blue. It was like, what was happening at the time? How does this get nominated? But um, I enjoyed it for um, actually being serious for what it wants to say. Like if Day for mm-hmm. Night is this playful, not really taking itself seriously, uh, Turkish Delight, despite its uh, potential trashiness, is also very kind of sure of itself but also kind of experimenting in certain places and how dark it can get and how nasty it could feel uh i i i i i i enjoyed it um until it's not until when it's not supposed to be enjoyed anymore because it gets really dark but um it's this deliciously twisted tale of a toxic relationship basically at the core of it and on how um, it really uh, transpires into action, especially in terms of like violence and sex. So dark. And then when I understood that the Paul Verhoeven here is the Paul Verhoeven, you know, that we know is like kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, he went that, he went there. And um, I am just. <laughs> sickeningly delighted that this made it in oh it's it's a great great nomination um it's i would not have given it the win over day for night but you know it it's such a bold outside the box pick and this is the kind of thing that i love to find um among academy nominees especially in the 70s because i feel like they took a lot more chances with things like this then um i don't think a movie like this would it would barely get a stateside release, if at all, now um, that to even be nominated by the Academy, much less you know submitted by its home country. Um, but you know, it, it it's it's so it's just such a dark and disturbing tale of sexual obsession and how you know the, the protagonist is not likable. You know they they built this movie around him and at no point are you supposed to root for him or to, um, you know, you become invested in their relationship, but you know all along that this is not a good person. And I I think that makes it interesting because he's charming, he's charismatic, but he's also terrible. And the movie doesn't, make you sympathize with him yet it it kind of it helps you understand you understand both him and um olga to the point that you know you understand their relationship even though you know that it's something deeply unhealthy um for both of them yeah it's it's something that usually when Usually it's hard for me to stick around a film when the protagonist is um, this well, nasty. I could use it nasty in terms of like psychologically and so many ways uh, in terms of relationship as well. And but it's a but it it's extremely fascinating that I, I cannot look away even when I wanted to. Um, it's um, 
it's a dark study of how far people can go in toxic relationships. Um, and kind of using art as something that underlines it. And kind of expressing that darkness, that innate darkness that these characters have. Um, I don't think I'll watch it again. But it's a it's a it's a it, it's a ride and it's a ride worth taking just because on how peculiar it got and how twisted it is and in its a uh, viewpoint of relationships and society I I, f- I didn't know what to feel after it but I it's something that I would cannot forget for quite a while and uh what a banger of an opening sequence. <sighs> oh, absolutely. And, and it, 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 I like that, you know, we, we start out with this, this scene of violence um, and then flash back to what happens before this. And you, you see what leads up to this, but then you, you start to realize that, you know, maybe this is not what we thought it was all along you know you're not necessarily seeing a build-up to an actual act of violence and you know it's the way that the movie deals with with sex and with relationships i mean it's so frank and honest and graphic that but it, it never loses sight of the humanity of the character's at the core even at their worst and that's that's one thing that i think verhoven does very well his films are almost he, he's kind of gone back to this in in his later period now that he's he's back to making um films in the netherlands but he was you know he's done l and black book and it, he he really kind of revels in this lurid sense of of sexuality and to the point that it goes beyond what most would consider good taste, but it's, it's, it's fascinating in the way he uses that to tell his stories. Like it, it's not gratuitous. I mean, there's so much, there's so much sex and nudity in this movie, but it, it never feels like he's just, just doing it for its own sake, which is interesting. Yeah. It's, I, I'm not sure if he's trying to say anything per se, but it's, at least I think the film is saying something with on how we on how these characters actually um, function in the context of their relationships and the toxicity and the darkness that one I mean how far one could um, share that darkness to the other and it's um, I don't know it, 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 it's a film worth studying for how it depicts the relationships that it had because it's not just the central relationship that is twisted and twisty. There are the side characters here, the the mom, and it's almost it it also features some characteristics of like heightened melodrama, but it's sucked into this really dark, um, psychosexual uh, exploration of this protagonist that has always has this um uh looming danger of exploding at any time uh this danger in him that is fascinating and yet something that makes made me extremely uncomfortable to the point point like i'm not sure if uh 
I I should still watch this, <laughs> but I'm hooked, and uh, it's a testament on how I think Verhoeven trusts and also challenges the audience in like sticking with a story like this. It's a lot. Yeah, I, as I was watching it, I I was worried about where it was going, um, especially in it, it. It starts out the two of them meet uh, while he's hitchhiking, um, and they have sex the very first time they meet and so that's kind of the the foundation on which they build their relationship and i i don't think that the film is necessarily um condemning the sexual desire that they feel but they they haven't to create they they've they've really mistaken and confused love and lust and so they they haven't built this this foundation to actually have the relationship that I think they think they're having. Um, but especially when it comes to, to Rutger Hauer's character is that, you know, he's, he, that's eventually where the movie leads. And it, I, I was worried as I was watching it, I was like, I'm, I'm really hoping they're not trying to make us sympathize with this character because of just the unforgivable things that he does. But it doesn't. It never really goes there. And even though that there are, there's a lot of uh, sexual frankness that happens here and, and, and that toes the line between sex and violence and breaks those walls down, that um, it, it is not portrayed as anything other than ugly. Which yeah? nominee would you like to discuss next? Uh, I will leave that up to you. All right, so let's go to something very, <laughs> very, um, you know, if this, if Turkish Delight was very weird, let's go with something very up there. Ali, the pedestrian from West Germany. Uh, it won Golden Globe, National Board of You Top 5, directed by Oscar-winning actor Maximilian Schell. And it is about... Um, a business, a German businessman who uh, gets involved in a car accident. And, you know, when that happens, um, the journalists in, involved started digging in and they discovered the the dark past of that business for, businessman, especially in his involvements during Nazi Germany. But in Greece, so what do you think of the pedestrian i this is my least favorite um Uh of the films of this field um you know it like you said it's very much up the academy's alley it's part of this like subgenre of world war ii films about um people hunting down the nazis so this is post-world war ii um it's focusing on um a former um Nazi commandant who may or may not have um, given the order to um, slaughter this group of women and children. And so it's, it's, it's really, it's about him. It's about the investigators who are trying to track him down. Um, and I, I feel like this has kind of become a subgenre unto itself. We've seen several movies like this just recently, um, you know, about the, the Nazis who have escaped accountability for their crimes after World War II. And now they're being hunted down to try to bring them to justice. Um, and the movie, it, it, it attempts to try to, 
to have some moral ambiguity to it. Um, the idea of, you know, is whether, does it matter whether or not he gave the order to, to kill these people? Um, is that even relevant? Because that, that kind of becomes the central question. Okay, they're trying to find witnesses, people who were there. Did he give the order to, to slaughter the, the women and children? And after a while, that question doesn't matter so much. And, and it's, you know, it, he's, he's still culpable because he was there. He was a Nazi. He participated in it, whether or not he pulled the trigger, whether or not uh, he actually gave the order. Um, but, and I, I think what the movie is trying to do is trying to, it's, it's kind of an indictment of not just him, but of, of Germany as a whole. This is like a self-reflection from a German perspective um, during World War II. Did, does it matter whether or not someone was actually a member of a Nazi party? Does it matter whether or not they actually participated in the Holocaust? How culpable were the bystanders? Which is an interesting you know, thing to explore. I just don't think this film really does it in a particularly interesting way. Mm, um, I, I, see where, I see where you're coming from. Um, this film... You know, for a film that's supposed to be kind of complex and how it handles, like, you know, its characters and their involvement in the, the massacre that happened, um, the central... The, the one that flashes back, the film flashes back, too. Um, I find myself more interested in the aesthetic choices than the actual storytelling, um, which I, I don't think is a good sign. Uh, first of all, Maximilian Schell has this um, way of piecing scenes and shots together, which kind of, I mean, I'm taking a look at the poster, which kind of boasts the good reviews that it got. Yes. Soaring lyrical quality. Um, certain uh, cinematic choice adventurous and uh, energetic cinematic choices those words i kind of can get behind because it's it's visualized not just as a reenactment of the, of the past and how the present meaning 70s the characters in the 70s are dealing with it um it tries to be, it's, I don't think it's psychological, but it tries to probably um, be more, a little bit more impressionistic on how it tries to create the mood and what the characters are thinking and feeling at the time. But I don't think the writing itself lets the story mount much to anything. Uh, it has, it follows the businessman and it also follows the journalists covering it. I'm not sure if those two really blend together um it feels um like those choices that i was saying a while ago the way it was edited the way it was put together i'm not sure if it's overcompensating for the narrative that it has because the narrative itself feels not deeply explored and for a film that is about a deep exploration of the past I don't think the film was able to keep up with that. 
and wasn't able to embody what the story it was trying to tell. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's, um, I, I think it's a bit stylistically confused. I think, you know, mm-hmm. Shell is trying to, to examine this incident from multiple sides. And, you know, I, I, I get what he's trying to do with examining the culpability of the character at its center and how that applies to to Germany as a whole and for the people who were involved but i it, it's kind of hard to to pull back and look at nazis as com- particularly complex <laughs> you know it's it, it's it's hard to kind of examine what happened from all sides when there's there's really no good side to what was going on um and i, I do understand the, the culpability of you know is it are, are you still guilty of war crimes even if you do not pull the trigger yourself i get that um but i i i think there are ways to explore it in in ways that are, are a little more complex and more interesting than what shell ultimately did i think you know he's he's got so many things going on you know, there's there's all this stuff um, with the the circle of women who are um, what, what, were they playing cards? Were they playing? I forget what it was. There's just like it 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 just doesn't seem particularly focused. You see a lot of um, stuff with the protagonist and his uh, grandson at museums, um, and you know, I get that they're trying to, you know, we're at this point what thirty years on from from world war ii and they're trying to explore it from a historical perspective and that's that's why they're always in museums you know at one point he he asks the the grandson asks um him why why they're always going to museums and he says you know so people will remember and i i think that's it it's an important thing but it just the way that shell explores it just it, it does not have the impact that I feel that story could have. Yeah, I think it's trying to put out a lot of things, and uh, it's not really coming together. Therefore, the impact is kind of diluted. Uh, because it's interested in doing a lot of things, <laughs> um, a lot of storylines, a lot of aesthetic choices, and it has it's a it has this running motif of like repeating shots and kind re- of re- reconfiguring scenes to it it shows one thing earlier and then you got to get what it actually means later that that cyclical nature of some of the editing it's an i see it more as an exercise in style than probably as a successful uh piece of storytelling and it's not even a particularly interesting style, I don't think. It it, it feel it just felt very bland to me. Like this is very much a placeholder nomination. Um that it, it feels up the Academy's alley, but there's especially when you compare it to Day for Night and Turkish Delight, that it it's just very bland. <laughs> yeah. I see, yeah. I, uh, I read a review of this, actually, um, after I watched it. I, uh, I just I, I Googled it just because I was curious about the backstory of the film. And, you know, it, it was very acclaimed at the time, but Pauline Kael 
hated this movie. And I wanted to read this clip of her review. Um, it says, Maximilian Schell takes the year's Stanley Kramer Prize for a movie on the theme of war guilt, which confuses more issues than it raises. The protagonist is a powerful industrialist who is exposed as the man responsible for the massacre of an entire Greek village during the Second World War. In writer-director Schell's hazy reasoning, however, the industrialist shouldn't really feel bad. Nobody in particular is guilty because everybody is guilty. Um, I thought that was a really interesting take on the film and, and you know, in his, his rush to try to explain or explore um, culpability for the Holocaust, he ends up making it more muddled than it really should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of defeats the purpose of re-exploring it in the first yes. place. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have two films left. Um, shall we go with the other war piece, or should you? Should we go with something less complicated for now? Oh, let's let's stick with the war. All right, uh, the house in Shalusha Street from Israel. Um, I had to copy the IMDb summary because I cannot summarize the film. Um, I'm just gonna <laughs> say a fatherless family immigrates to Israel from Egypt during the British Mandate period. The film traces the hardships the family suffers in the politically unstable country. Specifically, is focusing on the boy named Sami. Uh, almost also like a coming-of-age a bit story. While there is this political tension that is rising. You know, um, a tension between the British forces and the locals as well as the... the uh, Palestinian Arab violence towards Jews. That's um, uh, to take it away. I, 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 I. Uh, I actually liked uh, House on Chelsea Street. Um, I, I don't think it's a great film, um, but it's it, it it's definitely better than The Pedestrian. <laughs> I think it's kind of in the middle of the middle of the pack of this group of films. Um, it. On one hand, it's kind of your typical coming of age story. There's a backdrop of international conflict. Um, but I, I was interested in it. Um, it. It's about a period of Israeli history that I wasn't particularly familiar with, the British mandate periods. This is right after World War I. Um, it is not the state of Israel yet that we are familiar with today. Um, the family at the center um, is kind of this, they were at one point fairly wealthy, they lived in Egypt, but they have returned uh, to Israel to, um, they, they've immigrated to Israel during this British mandate period. This is when the British control this area, and they don't really seem to belong either place. They're caught kind of in the middle, so they, they face discrimination from the British for being Jewish. They uh, face discrimination um, from other Jewish people that are in the area because they're they are seen as being too Arab because they came from Egypt. Um, so it, it's kind of an interesting an interesting take um, on on this material, which I, I, I enjoyed. I thought the 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 central performance um, of Sammy um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this actor's name correctly, so please forgive me if I'm not. Um, uh, Ofer Shaheen, he is, this is the only movie he was ever in. 
and I, I think he's fantastic. I think he um, he's a young actor. Um, he's his family does not have a father. He's a teenager, and he's kind of being forced into being the adult. He is now the man of the house, um, and just the social upheaval that's going on. He gets his first job, and then everybody at the job immediately goes on strike, and he's <laughs> kind of stuck in the middle constantly of of trying to find his place in the world and where he belongs and um i i think it's a it's a it's a solid film i agree um it's i think the the, the story the coming of age story in itself is a quite um sturdy enough that when it's being compounded with the political context of it which I admit I googled a lot because I want to understand what's happening in Israel at the time, especially with what's happening with Israel now. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to get it right, and I want to understand the where the film is coming from. Um, I want to see the perspective, or at least understand the perspective where the film is coming from. I don't think I succeeded in understanding everything, but in itself, it's a clear-eyed. Um, uh, revisiting of this uh, specific period in this man's life. Um, it says here semi-autobiographical of the director. But regardless of that, um, I think it nails down the, the coming-of-age aspect of it pretty well. You know, here is a 15-year-old boy who gets um, sexually involved with... Um, a 25-year-old uh, immigrant, Russian immigrant, but how that uh, relationship is uh, um, well explored beyond that aspect of it. There is a true connection. Not you know, not saying that it's right or wrong, but saying that there was a connection even before they reached there. And the complicated things of him um, with the indented, indentured... Um, responsibility of not being the man in the house like i said um the problem with the laborers at the place the strike the resist it's it becomes complicated at a certain point but since the film was able to lay out solidly his journey as a 15 year old boy and how these um subplots start to branch out and how other characters can represent certain movements in the story like the mother getting involved with um another with um another man and and her mother's own journey of like finding i don't know her heart's desires and then his heart's desire as a 15 year old boy who just wants to read basically but is forced to work and displays and how the militarization in the place also affects whatever they have, them being displaced, it's become it became a lot of things. But because the it's pretty sturdy at its core, the story of Sami, uh, I didn't mind it. I was along for the ride, and I think I got um I got a bit emotionally involved in certain scenes which kind of demonstrate like despite my lack of knowledge with the political context where it's operating from my understanding or at least empathy with the characters was pretty well established so for that i i kind of give the 
recognize the merit of the film and how do you place a sorry this personal to a political context this large and so complicated i don't know i i think it's really good yeah i think i don't think it's a particularly complex film but i think the you know, the there are lots of layers to the politics um, that make up its backdrop that are very complex. And so that makes it interesting for me. Um, you know, it's, there are so many layers of prejudice that the characters face and not just the central characters, but you know, there, there's anti-Arab prejudice, there's anti-Jewish prejudice, there's anti-Russian prejudice at the time, because I mean, this was, this was in the twenties, this was not too, too long after the, the Russian revolution. And so the, um, the, the characters who come from Russia are looked at with suspicion um, from uh, people who are anti-communist. And so there, there are all these different um, layers that are going on that, that really kind of paint uh, an interesting portrait of, I mean, you can kind of see how there's still turmoil in the region just because there's, there's so much going on here and the, the, the British presence is not helping. You know, they, they, it's, it's basically a colony at this point. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to be an, an expert at all in <laughs> Middle Eastern politics, but, you know, it, it, it's a period that I was not familiar with. I, I think, you know, from an American perspective, the history of that region begins after World War II um, and after the state of Israel is established. But this is something that is, that's, that's well before that. Um, and it, it, you know, I don't know if it necessarily shines any light onto the, the modern situation, but it is an, um, it's an interesting coming of age story. Um, I think it's a fairly uh, standard structure for a story of this type, but, you know, I, I do think it's a solid film and I was, I was invested in the family and their struggles. Yeah, I couldn't add more to it. It's a, it's a really solid one. Um... I said I couldn't add anything and I added something <laughs> stupid. All right. So the last nominee that we have here is L'Invitation from Switzerland. It won the jury prize in Cannes at the time. It's about um, an old-ish man who still lives with his mother and works in an office. And then uh, his mother passes away. Not a spoiler. It's, it's where the premise is laid on. And then after he takes a leave, uh, he invites his co-workers to a party in a new house, a large house. And then, you know, when they come to the house, they get drunk and more drunk and uh, more drunk. Some of them, at least. Um, what do you think of La Vitacion? I didn't love it. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's bad. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting in the way that it, it kind of explores, you know, so these are coworkers and they're, they're socializing outside of work for what feels like the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they really just know each other, um, as the people they are when they're at work. And so they, they go to this party and they start drinking and suddenly like the truth comes out, right? Like the facade that you put up when you go to work with your coworkers is now gone. And so they're they're becoming someone that nobody else recognizes, um, and it it's it's like a it reminds me a little bit of Jean Renoir's um, Rules of the Game. Mm -hmm. So they're at this this party for the weekend, and um, 
the alcohol starts flowing and the truth starts coming out and there's there's not necessarily a protagonist like we're we're, we're meeting several different people it's an ensemble piece um but i i you know it's it just didn't feel particularly interesting to me it also reminded me of our most recent best foreign language film winner another round um when the alcohol kind of brings out the truth and um what is what's the in vino veritas the in wine there is truth so they become the they become their real selves and nobody really knows what to do with that <laughs> so mm -hmm. you know it i like the sound design um the i like how the the, the clicking of the typewriters in the office which just becomes this monotonous like soul crushing thing kind of juxtaposes with the sound of the water sprinkler at the party. Um, that was interesting to me, but you know, the film as a whole, I, I found fairly dull. I don't think, you know, it, for, for something, for a film that has such an interesting premise with so many different places to go, I found the actual execution of it to be uh, kind of bland. Um, yeah. Uh... First of all, um, I always find it interesting when we get one of these kind of nominees. Like, there's nothing really like a huge story to tell, huge historical impact, or the big important story, or um, that's the house on Shalusha Street and the pedestrian, or like something as out there as Turkish delight. This is none of those. It's a small scale drama ish story about people spending an afternoon um for that it's kind of refreshing mm -hmm. on paper that's where i stop i think i uh there were it's not bad but like i said it's dull and i think sometimes dull is worse than bad because then I ask myself like why am I watching this it's um it's a very straightforward uh, I think it I think it aims to be um a lot of things one of those is um I think the film is kind of teasing us that it's going to reveal something about the main character which I don't think we ever really get no. So there's that. There's also the um, uh, interesting character of the server, which is kind of leading to somewhere, but doesn't really lead us to something as well. And then the band of characters that we have, with them getting drunk and um, starting to be more carefree and they're conflicting personalities arise I don't think it's a particularly well observed one I don't think there is a it doesn't the film doesn't really focus on what it needs to focus on like whatever it needs to focus on it feels half-hearted it feels like all right, so we're sticking with these characters. What what are you trying to say with sticking with these characters? Am I supposed to observe their behaviors with one another? Am I supposed to 
see how they deal with differing personalities once they're inebriated? Do I have to see? Do I? Uh, what What are you showing? Are you showing individuals coming out of their shell once they're drunk, or are you talking about um, a group experience and how it can get weird? Because sometimes it really insists on sticking together, and sometimes it splinters into certain like mini scenes. You know, once is one is on the phone for a long time, one is having sex behind um behind a, a tree well there's also this storyline of the thief uh, i don't know and then there's also this um woman uh woman who gets a little bit too comfortable that she strips in front of the owner uh, or manager i think um so a lot of things are happening and yet none of it is also happening as well like it doesn't really mount to anything and after watching the film like what should I have gotten something about human behavior? Because I don't think the film was really interested in that as well. It's trying to set up these like cliffhangers in terms of characters that don't really lead to anywhere. Yeah, for a uh, for an ensemble character piece, none of the characters were particularly interesting to me, and I even found myself like losing track of who they were and combining characters with other characters and not really being able to keep their stories straight because none of them really had a strong story really and it, it is like they're they, they have these characters that are kind of mysterious and you feel like you're building to some kind of revelation and then you don't um you know if you're if you're using Renoir as your jumping off points um you know the rules of the game had a, had a socio-political overarching theme behind it you're you're building to there, there's there's a, a moment you're building to you know in rules of the game you're building up to the murder but in in this it's like your climax is you're building up to the moment when the the girl takes her clothes off in front of the manager and then it's not but that doesn't really feel like it doesn't feel like a moment where anything shifts other than you you know a line has been crossed but that's that's it. It's it's not a it's not a solid climax that really shifts the narrative in any way or says anything I thought particularly interesting about human behavior or about the characters. Yeah. Um and the the main character um is neither detailed nor enigmatic enough to uh I, I mean he is someone that we don't really know well. Um, what is happening with him? I mean, we just get hints like he's so close to his mother. Um, he bought this house, but since I'm not, I don't think the film is decided on like, is he gonna be a mystery, or mm -hmm. is he gonna be something that we'll get to know, or is he something that dwells in between? I don't think it's really decided on what it wants to do with the central character that that falls apart because he is kind of the point why the film the story exists. We see not necessarily his story, but how other people respond to him. And with that character being so central... And I think that central character isn't really well 
fleshed out or defined or like what is even the deal you already lost the hook of the story because the stentor character is ugh, nothing yeah i kept waiting on them to go somewhere with him and then they just don't um there i feel like there's something to be explored in his relationship with his mother and you know the grief that he's feeling and you know his whole life has just been upended and then i it just it's like it doesn't want to go there it, uh, the, the film almost doesn't seem interested in this the very story it's telling which is a very strange thing to watch on screen yeah it is it's one of those films that aren't necessarily bad but make me question why i do this podcast but yeah that's um that's la vida i it I mean talk about like it got nominated at the oscars but it won jury prize at Cannes, so there's that as well i don't know um yeah that that's that's the four nominees that we got what is your like without ranking them so later what is your like general vibe or like what do you feel in general about these nominees i feel like you have two really interesting nominees and then three that are almost placeholders that feel like they i mean there's a reason why you really most people have not heard of a lot of these nominees yeah you know day for night is a classic um turkish delight fits into the career of um oh well-respected filmmaker and the the other three you know they don't they didn't really leave much of an impression um and there's not they're not readily available they are hard to find and i i feel like there were other films this year that would have made much better nominees here yeah um yeah <laughs> having seen two other submissions i I don't know what to feel yet, but uh, before we get there, uh, I'm just gonna mention like some of the films that were nominated elsewhere in this in the, the Oscars this year. Um, there's a Ludwig, that was uh, from Italy, France, West Germany was nominated for costume design, but I think the big one this year that wasn't submitted was *Cries and Whispers* from Sweden. It's directed by Ingmar Bergman. It's it's nominated for Best Picture, Directing, Original Screenplay, Costume Design, and One Cinematography. It's a uh, it's a big one. It's it's kind of an unusual case, you know, when a film was nominated for Best Picture, a foreign language one, but wasn't even submitted for a foreign language film. I'm trying to still piece why, but just for a quick summary, it is about. Um, Two sisters who come um, home to their um, sister, one of their sisters with a terminal cancer, and that sister of them uh, is close to the servant, and how they struggle dealing with. Um, I should have said names, <laughs> with the one that's sick. Uh, Agnes is the one that's sick of uterine cancer. Her sisters are Maria and Karin. And the servant is uh, Sylvan. Oh, no, no, no. Sylvan is the actor. I'm sorry. Uh, Anna. Uh, no. Never mind. 
So have you seen this one? I have, yes. I, I had seen it before. I actually uh, revisited it um, for this podcast. Thank you. Uh, what do you think of this one? I love it. You know, it's uh, it's it's hard for me because, you know, I I it's not my favorite Bergman, but when you have a career that's so stuffed with masterpieces as Bergman's that something that may not be my favorite Bergman could still be better than most anything else. And, and that's, that's, that's cries and whispers for me. Um, it's interesting that the way, the reason it was not nominated, it, it's, it's kind of convoluted. Um, so Bergman could not find a, a North American distributor for cries and whispers. Nobody wanted it. They said it wasn't commercial. It wasn't going to make any money. Nobody wanted to touch it. So eventually Roger Corman picked it up. Roger Corman had just started his own production company and he was mostly known for making like B movies, exploitation pictures. And he wanted a movie um, that could bring some class to his new operation. He wanted an art house film. So he bought Cries and Whispers and released it in North America before it was ever released in Sweden, which made, so because of that weird convoluted release pattern, it was not eligible for best foreign language film at the Oscars uh, because it was released in North America before it was released in its home country. Um, so that's, that's kind of the story there, but it's, I, I, I absolutely understand why it was, um, nominated for best picture and best director it was the only film bergman ever directed that got those honors um and it was up against some heavy competition that year uh, it ended up winning for spin uh, neekvist's cinematography which is absolutely stunning the reds in that movie are some of the most glorious reds you will ever see <laughs> on film um and have have you read any about why why bergman chose red Oh, I should have. So, so this is another interesting tidbit is that the reason basically everything in the movie is read is because Bergman wanted to use this film as a way to explore the soul. And he always imagined the soul as being this thin, wet, red membrane somewhere in the body. <laughs> So that's that's why everything's red. Um, it's it's you're you're supposed to be kind of like inside the human soul, which is interesting. And it's there's so much red. I mean, the walls are red, the carpet's red, the the furniture is red. Instead of fading to black, the film fades to red. It's and it's such an interesting effect. It's not like anything I've ever seen before or since, really, other than maybe Kieslowski's red. But um, it's it's stunning, you know. It's um, it's it's Bergman. It's Bergman at his peak, and he he certainly made other films that I consider better. But it's I I think it's a it's a wonderful film. Yeah, uh, I have seen this um, because it's hard to ignore <laughs> that this film existed this year, and and you know um, it's the most well known foreign language film. From the Oscars, at least, at the time. Um, I don't love it, but it's so... It's... 
how does how do you even form the words to talk about Christ in this verse? Um, <laughs> it's it's its outlook on life is so um, it's so magnetic. Yet it's not something that it's not a headspace that I would want to be in. But Bergman portrays this outlook in life almost like with despair and lack of understanding why are things happening or why are things being experienced by the, by the human beings involved. But it's so captivating. When it's like, it's, it, it, it's basically, it's, it's, it's miserable for me. It's miserable to experience this film with these characters. And yet it's not something that I would like, you know, like, oh my gosh, give me this experience. And it's because I think that Bergman understands the human experience that comes with the misery of it. I, I don't think it's misery in a bubble. It is coming from complicated relationships. It's coming from the difference in class that, um, the servant had with the two sisters. It's coming from um, their distance from one another, like in relationship. It's about the 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 bothersome quietness and how you know it. There comes those films where I don't love it, but it feels so sure of itself. It feels so um so well formed so complete that i cannot really impeach any of the choices that bergman did it's now just a matter of me that is that am i do i have a feeling of love that i feel like no i I have the highest admiration for this one because it's it's really it's 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 so damn serious (laughs) and it's hard to pull it off without um, reaching a point of mockery, but I don't think I think it it avoids that. It is somber. It is. I don't really like to use the word depressing in films, but I think I might throw it with this one. Um, and the band of actors that we got, unbelievable. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's when you're watching a Bergman film, it, it's it's such a singular experience, and you you know from the first moment that you are in the hands of a filmmaker who knows exactly what he wants and exactly how to get it. It's it's just such a clear example of a master in complete command of his craft, and they're almost spiritual experiences, like. You know, when Bergman goes in, he goes in. I mean, I mean, this is a whole movie that's designed around exploring the human soul. I mean, <laughs> Bergman does not play around um, when it comes to his thematic content. And it is heavy. It is a heavy film. It is a sad film. But, you know, it's it, it's just hard not to be swept up in what he's doing. Yeah. Exactly. It's it, it's it's so striking that e- even if he, whatever one's feelings about it is that you know that okay this person he knows what he wants 
you might not agree with it. I mean, I certainly didn't agree with him in face to face, but um, Bergman in this one, it's it's somewhere between um, I don't know, it's somewhere between probably Autumn Sonata and Fanny Alexander on how it's both simple and yet elegant and complicated and uncompromising like it Bergman is in is not giving you any easy ways out you'll have to face the grueling experience of grief of emotional distance and it's so confronting and how he uses faces as a way for us to not be able to look away and really get sucked in into this ex experiences again dark again not a headspace that I want to I would want to be in but he explores it and finds some some version of the truth in it I don't know that is relatable despite the films can be potentially read as a you know, intimidating or um, what is this thing? But Bergman is truthful in handling the film, the film's topics and the film's themes and subject. And uh, I don't know. I I'm I am happy that this made it this far because again, it's one of those like nominations. Like happened? What happened in seventy three that they decided to go with cries and whispers and not. Not even like in an expanded ballot, but like in a ballot of five, it got those big nominations for picture directing and screenplay. I w I just wish it got more also for acting, but I don't know what happened as well. But I don't know. It's, it it's, was the it, only yeah. one of the best picture nominees that year that managed to get uh, to not get any acting nominations, and it is strange that that didn't happen because you have such a fantastic cast of some of the, the greatest actresses that Bergman ever worked with who are all right there and then they ignored them <laughs> but yeah. yeah and also with this cast I think you know uh, I'm starting to really fall in love with Liv Ullman going mm. back you know with this podcast but if she's not my favorite from this cast this cast is unbelievable like I want to just mention their names a bit, like Harriet Anderson, mm -hmm. Carrie Sylvan, Ingrid Thulin, and Liv Ullman. Gosh, these people. They're good. They're good. <laughs> it's, it's a really strong cast that I cannot like just choose one, but it's a really good group of actors. <gasps> it really is. Yeah. So it makes me happy to inform that I have seen now Five Bergmans, I'm proud. Yay. So um, this year we got 20 submissions. Um, the only one that was disqualified was Sweden for scenes from a marriage. Uh, I've seen it discussed in the 74 podcast because um, for some reason it was more well discussed in 74. But again, Bergman is so sure of himself. It's a complex Look at marriage. <laughs> Not the first time it was said. I have got nothing new to say about scenes from a marriage. And then this is also the only year when Italy did not submit. Ever. 
which baffles me because there's one there's this one film that I've seen from Italy this year that would have made easy sense to be submitted. Um, first timers were East Germany and Finland. Um, I have listed here some of the few titles that would have probably made some sense to get in. Days of Betrayal from Czechoslovakia. It's about the pre the Czech Czech's president Czechoslovak's president attempt to save the independence from Hitler's advancement. Uh, the Earth is a Sinful Song from Finland. It's about a 19-year-old girl who gets pregnant and whose father, alcoholic father, is uh, gets angry. Photography from Hungary. It's about a photographer and a retoucher wandering in small villages, taking photos of the villagers. And then the Battle of Sudjeska from Yugoslavia. Um... In 1943, 20,000 20, Yugoslav partisans led by Tito find themselves encircled by 120,000 well-armed Axis troops in the mountains of Bosnia. And it's one of the most expensive Yugoslav films ever. I did see one submission. It's Kudeta from Japan. It's about the ultra-nationalist intellectual who inspired a failed military coup in 1936. Um... Not not for me. Um, it again, the style is so decided, it's so evident, probably to a fault because the the off center framing is just everywhere. Um, not for me. I would take it over one or two of the eventual nominees, but again, I don't love this one. Um, going to the films that were not submitted. This is such a rich year for world cinema. I, I couldn't believe that, you know, upon research, like luckily I did some research, like, wow, this is, these are the films that we have this year that were submitted. Um, I'll have to start with the one that's heralded as one of the best ever, which I haven't seen. It's Aguirre, the Rat of God from West Germany. It's directed by Werner Herzog. It's about the ruthless and insane Don Lope de Aguirre who leads a Spanish expedition in search of El Dorado. Have you seen it? I have, yes. Um, it's it's difficult because, you know, I when, I when I look at these years and I try to formulate what my best of the year would be, I, I since it was released in its home country in 72, I, Aguirre is 72 for me rather than 73. So I don't know if, if, if it's not number one here, if it, then it's close. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, I think it's one of the greatest films of the seventies. Um, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, it's, it, it's been years since I've seen it. Um, but it would absolutely be, um, if, if it had been nominated for best foreign language film this year, I would have, I would have picked it to win. Like that would have been, that would have been my pick. Yeah. Um, this one, I just found out that it was, um, eligible this year hours ago when I started doing my research, <laughs> um, for the other films this year. Um, it premiered like December 72, which would qualify for 73 in the foreign language film at the Academy Awards. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I got to see this one. Um, there's also uh, Love and Anarchy from Italy, directed by Lina Wittmüller. It's about um, 
When a friend is murdered by the fascists, a melancholy farmer takes up a residence in a Roman brothel as he and an anarchist prostitute plot to assassinate Mussolini. Okay. And then um, The Mother and the Whore from France, directed by Jean Eustache. Um, okay, it's a, it's a lot. And then I have personally seen two films this year. One is, what I'm saying, the Italian no submission thing. Um, this year, they released A Brief Vacation, starring Vittorio De Sica. It got a few like best actor citations in 75 when it was released in the United States. It's about um, a factory worker who was diagnosed with tuberculosis and was then prescribed by a doctor for um, a month, months-long um, vacation in a sanatorium in the Alps, where finally she could, <laughs> while she's there for treatment for like, you know, by taking a vacation, taking a break from her life, she gets to find herself. Um, it's a I don't know how this holds in the career of Vittorio De Sica, especially with the Italian neorealism, another movement, which I would hopefully get to encounter as I go back. But I don't know if it's, it's there. <laughs> but as a character piece, it's so well done. Florinda Volcan is a terrific performer here. Um, that's all I got to say. It's beautiful. And one film that we both got to see is from Senegal. It's Tukibuki. It's directed by Gibril Diop Mambeti. It premiered in Cannes. It's about a cowherd and a university student who try to get money so that they could um, leave their hometown, their home country, in order to go to Paris. Um, what are your thoughts on Tukibuki? Tukibuki is my favorite film of 1973. Uh, I first encountered its... Uh, several years ago uh, it was in criterion had put it out in the very first um martin scorsese world cinema project box set and just fell in love with it i it's it's beautiful it's absurd it's political it's just it's so many things and you know, if I were making a, a top 10 of 1973 list, it would absolutely be number one. Um, yeah, I, I researched for this one. Um, I found out it was this for this year. And I got I got to be honest, after doing this podcast for like five seasons now, the lack of African... Mm-hmm films that I get to see because of the nominees is uh, getting glaring more glaring and I missed um, I missed uh, watching Mulade I missed there's this one from from 83 that you bought in Criteria I, I forgot what was what film was it um, you, you got something from the Criterion collection from 83 it's an African film I, I, I forgot gosh 1983 yeah or when the, when the first time we talked, I think you bought two African, or you got sent to African blue uh, African films on Blu-ray. Are you talking about Mondavi? Mondavi and is it something? Some, anyway, yeah. So I was feeling like I gotta make up <clears throat> and perfect. I searched for like 1973, found Tokibuki, watched it, and oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> um, watched this with their own like. I don't know, 
8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> um, quite a startling opening for the day. Quite a startling opening sequence. It is a lot, and I love it for that. Um, <laughs> you know what I think with the pedestrian about like it's about a lot of things and it doesn't come together. This one, it flawlessly comes together in this also absurdist but also serious like sometimes the stories gotta be absurdist for us to take them seriously i think and with tukibuki the tone of it is so specific it's 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 peculiar and genius at the same time mm-hmm. i like when i was watching it and and i was witnessing how it reconfigures its own cinematic language within its own runtime and how engrossed I was and like how it does things with editing and music and how it pieces together these things and the direction is it's unbelievable. I was watching and I'm like, this is what I've been missing. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, It's so good. I mean, for the other viewers, I mean, you have to be warned like there are some on-screen animal violence but other than that if they're okay with i mean not okay with it but like if they can get past that there is some really beautiful and deeply layered storytelling somewhere down the line in this one um yeah mambet is such a fascinating filmmaker it's he's only he only really directed two features um he, he directed quite a few short films, but uh, Tukibuki was his first, and he didn't make another until 1992, um, Hyenas, which is also a wonderful film. Um, but it, he, he does kind of create his own cinematic language here. Uh, a lot of what the, the, the Senegalese filmmakers were doing was made, uh, it was, it's very influenced um, by French colonialism. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the films you're seeing in this period, uh, Mandabi, the one you mentioned earlier, um, and you may want to watch it when you get to 1968, um, <gasps> when it was released. So you still have time. Um, yes. But, you know, it, it, it was a reaction to, uh, by African filmmakers toward uh, French colonialism in Senegal. Uh, and and Tukibuki definitely has those elements there. Um, that song that we hear repeated over and over and over again, the Paris, Paris, you know, it's just, it becomes yeah. absurd after a while. And this, this idea that these characters are going to immigrate to France and everything is going to be okay when it's very much not, you know, that the idea of, of Paris, of France, is, is put on this almost absurd pedestal that everybody thinks it's this magical, wonderful place where all your problems are solved, and they they know very well that it's not um, within the context of the film. And you know, it's 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 satirical. It's um, it, it's just such a fascinating uh, film with a perspective that's not really seen very often in world cinema. I think African cinema is uh, extremely overlooked. Um, and there's so many fascinating things to be found there. And, and this is one of them. Yeah, guilty as charged with this podcast, especially. So I am personally looking forward to more as uh, as I, because this is the 70s. And this category runs until like 50s, late 40s. So I have two seasons left. Can't wait for the next chapter, really. I'm just saying it right now. I can't wait because... 
I get to see more of these. Um, there was so much radical filmmaking coming out of Africa that I don't think people realize. I mean, you know, it, it, they were from a leftist perspective, from a Marxist perspective. Um, some of the, the very best stuff was was coming out of uh, Africa, specifically Senegal. And um, I, I think it's definitely worth exploring. Yeah. And this one is, uh, and Tukibuki in particular has been part of the restoration that uh, Mr. Scorsese, who he is, um, has undertaken. And it's a really beautiful restoration. I, um, It gives me so much joy to see these films be in those like close to perfect as much as they can condition because um you know film preservation especially in like third world countries like ours and theirs it's not really good so we got to save a lot of these films so that we can start rewriting the history of cinema because it has been um hugely leaning towards um the whites <laughs> specifically mm. and like European cinema and American cinema and British cinema. Like now I got to change that up. Um, yeah. So that's the thing that we saw Tokyo bookie. It's really a wonderful film. If I think it's on a criterion channel. Yep. So, um, after all has been said, I mean, I have a few titles here, like Alfredo, Alfredo and Casablan instead of siege and, Anna and the Wolves, and look at the, the names here. It's directed by Pietro Germi, Costa Gavras, Carlos Saura, big names, but there's a lot to cover here. So um, I would like to ask you now, um, day for night, I mean, you've said there are some films here that you love, probably more about day for night, but as it stands, do you think day for night is a worthy winner of this category? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Definitely among those nominees, but you know, even when you 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 stack it up against other um, international films from that year, I, I think it's a solid winner. It's Truffaut's only win, and you know, I, I think it's a solid one. It's it may not be the film that he is most remembered for, but I, I think it's definitely one of his strongest films, and it's a it's a worthy winner of this category. I yeah yes, I love it. Um, uh, it gave me so much joy when I saw it, and not just because it's a joyful watch. It's it really is like I don't know, kind of proud. That, not that I saw it, kind of proud that I humbled is the right word that I got a chance to see it. That I got to live to that day that I saw it. And like wow, that's what I've been missing since I was in film school. The films that I've been avoiding because like no, I don't watch like required viewings i'm cool <laughs> and i graduated film school without watching citizen kane how do you do that yeah <laughs> um and this is one of those films but i'm so glad i saw it now um yeah it, it's a really beautiful work from francois Truffaut and highly rewatchable highly rewatchability um can't wait to rewatch it and see it in a different lens because there's a lot of lenses there I think it's a great gateway for for people who might be intimidated by this category. Um, I, I think there's often a perception, especially among Americans, that uh, the best foreign language film category is full of very stuffy films, um, maybe self-important, 
but this is just not it's so fun it's so fresh and even today i mean watching it it, it feels like it could have been made yesterday it's just it's such a fun movie to watch um i think that would be a good gateway for people who may not be as familiar uh with filmmaking outside of america um that it, it would be a good introduction yeah and um makes me question my decision making skills and like why did you skip it but here we are now. I've seen it. It's a wonderful film. Now we can just rank the five that we've seen the nominees. What's your five? Uh, my five is Day for Night, Turkish Delight, House on Chelich Street, The Invitation, and The Pedestrian in West. Yeah, my five, now going backwards, my five is The Pedestrian. Uh, no, 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 no. It's Lovitacion, and then The Pedestrian, and then The House on Shirosha Street, and then Turkish Delight, and my number one is Day for Night. Um, having said that, um, for example, you have these films here, um, Cries and Whispers, Tukibuki, Aguirre the Wrath of God. You, you said... Would you pick any of these films above Day for Night? I would probably pick Tukibuki above Day for Night um, and Agira if it had been, um, if it was in that category. I don't know if I would have picked Cries and Whispers above Day for Night. I think I would have put Day for Night above Cries and Whispers. Yep. Um, for now... For now, for me at least, it's gonna be day for night, and then Toki Bookie, and then Cries and Whispers, and um, we only have three nominees, <laughs> so that's it. Uh, well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me for discussing this extraordinary film. I'm I'm so glad that you know we settled on settled on this year. Um, it was a great film and to have a great conversation with you. It was really um, a delight. So thank you so much. And um, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Uh, if you want to find more from me, you can visit uh, fromthefrontrow.net, inreviewonline.com, or uh, come visit me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Lucas. There you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Carla Sohano, this podcast at One Inch Barrier podcast everywhere again the sunday after next week is the final episode of the final bonus episode so we've already done like catherine at home and um never look away and shoplifters cold war is coming in the 2018 retrospective again i'm wishing you all well this is a goodbye for now and together let us break the one inch barrier mm -hmm.